life fades. The vision dims. All that remains are memories. I remember a time of chaos, ruined dreams, this wasted land. But most of all, I remember the podcast. Speak all evil. Hey, get a peek. I'm recording my podcast. Go away. You've been in there for like an hour. Well, I'm not going to finish unless you stop bothering me. When the world was powered by the digital fuel, and the phones sprouted great cities of pages and posts, gone now, swept away, for reasons long forgotten. Yes, what is it? Yeah, uh, Caitlin needs to use the bathroom. Yeah, I know, she, I know. She just told me, I'm almost done. Okay, well, hurry up. Yeah, can, can you give me two minutes? Without likes, they were nothing. They built a house of straw, and the thundering swipes sputtered and stopped. Their web hosts talked and talked and talked. But nothing could stem the avalanche. I can't hold it. <sighs> I just come in and do it. Just do it. I'll look the other way. I just, I'll look the other way. Just be quiet because I'm recording. What the fuck are you wearing? Don't worry. I'm in character. Just don't worry about it. Do your business and do it quietly. In the roar of a search engine, they lost everything and became a shell of a show. A burnt-out, desolate cast. A podcast haunted by the demons of their past. A show that wandered out into the wasteland. And it was here, in this blighted place, that they learned to live again. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm Trent. I am deep down in the tomb of doom. I'm here with Kevin, Kat, and Dave on satellite. And this week we're talking dystopia. That is a place where everything is bad, unpleasant, uh, usually environmentally degraded, and generally in dystopian film, uh, usually post-apocalyptic, post-disaster of some kind or another, and this has been one of my favorite genres of film since I was you know, old enough to understand adult movies going back to Mad Max and uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we watched a bunch of great dystopian movies this week. I loved all of these picks. Um, Kat, you actually went the most old school this week. Um, John Carpenter's 1988, They Live. Yes, my mind initially went right to They Live when I... Heard we're doing a dystopian episode. Um, I would say that's like the quintessential like progression of like going from a normal society to a dystopian society. Like it's very um, you know subliminal messages and all the rich people have all the power, the poor people they're living in camps kind of situation. Um, and John Carpenter is just the man, Roddy, just muscling up left and right. Just taking names and kicking butts. I love it. It's very, it's funny, which is usually my go-to also when it comes to horror movies. Um, and the fight scenes are just really funny too. And they're very good. Like that one half hour fight scene <laughs> was magical. Yeah, that fight scene was insane. People that know Rowdy Rowdy Piper from the wrestling arena were probably pretty surprised that uh, he was not killed. Oh. <laughs> oh. I don't wow. get it, but it sounds funny. He used to wrestle in a Scottish kilt. Oh. Well, he didn't. He didn't Good wrestle. He didn't wrestle in the kilt. He wore the kilt. He was 
he wore the kilt like to the ring and then he would take the kilt off to do the wrestling. What did he have underneath? Nothing. Some some tighties. Nice. <laughs> he he wrestled he wrestled totally naked. It looked a lot like he was going to Old Orchard Beach in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish he would have wrestled in those jeans that he wore. Mm. In mm. They Live cuz those are mm. some is a good fit, mm. I would say. <laughs> Serious mom jeans. They're they're pulled up. They're pulled up to his navel. They're the highest waisted. Um, those are back now, right? High waisted jeans. You wear those, cat? Yeah, I love them. They you know slurp everything in. Well, but back then they were all wearing high waisted loose fit jeans, um, wedgied. He had a wedgie. <laughs> the whole movie he was wedgied with these jeans. I mean, cranked up there, and you could see the wrestler ass. Like, you know, you, even through the loose fit, you could see that he had the ass of a stallion who was <laughs> taut. You know, it was flat. You know what I mean? It was taut. Uh, it was steroided up. Um, he was uh, he was really in his prime. Yeah, I really appreciated that they waited, I want to say, like, f- a good four minutes until they had him completely shirtless. <laughs> yeah, yeah like shirtless flex. on the jump <laughs> I know, it kind of took me aback because I think he was more roided out for this movie than than he was in his wrestling career because he wasn't like the most muscle-bound guy. But then, yeah, that scene, I was like, whoa, who is that, who is that yeah. guy? He's, whoa, that's <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper. Looking it's, a whole, it's a whole different kind of early it's horror movie boobs. It's a swole different kind. <laughs> they should have, how did they not work... Um, Sunglasses at Night into this by is it Corey Corey Hart? Oh, I made a trap remix of Sunglasses at Night and uh, I'm going to use it in the episode. I'm very excited. I'll probably drop it right here. (laughs) So I had no idea that this was a John Carpenter film which uh, kind of blew my mind and made me ashamed of my my horror nerddom. Um, Obviously I saw this movie when I was a kid. It came out in 88. Um, I won't say how old I was. But I, I, I seriously have probably seen this movie five or six times over the course of my life, and I had no clue that it was Carpenter. You know, I'm surprised at how well this movie holds up and that he didn't pursue, you know, some kind of franchise. Yeah, I kept thinking when I was watching this, if, like, Harrison Ford had played the lead, they'd probably still be making sequels now. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and the part was originally written for Kurt Russell, who obviously Carpenter had worked with on... Um, a couple movies before this, particularly The Thing, um, and he felt that he was like burning himself out with Kurt Russell. Uh, Carpenter's a huge fan of wrestling, and he met Piper at WrestleMania two or three, uh, and and introduced himself and asked if he'd be interested, you know, in getting into acting. And Piper was like, "Yeah, great. Who the fuck are you?" Yeah, you definitely get that. Excuse me. He was like, who the fuck are you? The whole time you know, you're watching this movie, you look like your head fell on the cheese dip back in 1957. Okay. This one, real fucking. This one is probably one of the only dystopian films where the citizens don't know they're in a dystopia. Like, usually, most dystopian movies are, they tend to be post apocalyptic or post disaster, post calamity of some kind. There's a, the environment is degraded, there's a totalitarian uh, government in charge or something like that. Um, But this movie, Nobody is aware of the dystopia. They're all just walking around because they don't have the sunglasses and they can't see that uh, everything is being controlled. And, you know, they can't see what all the signs actually say in the magazines and the TV screens. uh, And, of course, the skull faced uh, alien people. So I thought that was um, kind of a cool twist on on the dystopian idea. You look like your head fell on the cheese dip back in 1957. Lead character, Rowdy, Roddy. Um, nada. He start, huh? Nada. What nada? His name actually, his last name is not mentioned, but it's nada, as in oh, nothing. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't, I just referred to him as Rod, you know. Sure. Hot Rod. <laughs> um, so he starts off as like, I guess, a hopeful citizen. Like he says, I believe in America. I oh, yeah. follow the rules. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. just down on my luck. <laughs> you know, everything's going to be fine. And then he, you know, slowly starts to find out. And I found this really relatable in that, you know, I think now uh, there's a lot of 
you know, conspiracy theories and, you know, rich people are out to get us in real life in the present day in 2020. Um, and so I, I feel like I see a lot of those kinds of people on the internet. They're being, you know, very, <laughs> they're, uh, they're basically just, you know, they're like, oh, the government wouldn't do anything to hurt us, like, blah, 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 just like follow the rules, you know, status quo, but we're in a very shitty situation. So that was a very, a real moment for me where I'm like, those people still exist and it's all bad. One thing, if you look at, at this era of movies uh, during like the Cold War, there was lots of movies where Russians especially were portrayed as the bad guys. And it was kind of cool to see our own government uh, being put on blast in this movie. Uh, that wasn't something that you saw predominantly in yeah. American action horror dystopia movies. Yeah, I think it's very fitting that that we're talking about this movie in the very week that you start seeing massive protests going on about the shelter-in-place uh, initiatives that are happening. Um, you know, and, and you know, could could Roddy? have, you know, maybe, uh, get, you know, put some forces together. Because another thing is, you know, he gets these sunglasses and then basically just goes on like a one-man wrecking crew instead of trying <laughs> to kind of wake everybody up to be like, hey, guys, this is what's going on. Let's band together. Well, he does yeah. He does join up with the um, with the rebels. That we talked about the rebels in this movie are a, uh, an AA meeting in the basement of some sort of, <laughs> some sort of church on the dark side of town and they their meeting lasts about uh, 10 minutes and then uh, the stormtroopers come in and wipe <laughs> pretty much wipe everyone out except for Roddy and um, his love interest uh, uh, what's um, Me uh, Megan Meg Foster? Foster Meg Foster with the crazy eyes Betty those I don't eyes, know are they real I think yeah. those are uh, Betty yeah. those are Betty Davis eyes <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> I appreciated the fact that that Meg Foster pushed a professional wrestler out a four-story window pretty easily in the dating world. Trent, you've probably come across uh, a lot of this type of reaction. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, and the, the the realistic part of that is that then when he sees her at the uh, AA meeting, um, he's just like, "Oh, what's up, chill? Do you still like me?" Like he doesn't, he doesn't seem to, he doesn't seem to hold it against her at all. He's, he's still more than willing. Like she tried to kill him. She called the cops. Uh, I would think she's probably working with uh, government forces, but no, Roddy is willing to let bygones be bygones and uh, maybe things will be different this time. Yeah, he's trying to open his heart up, you know, he's ready for love. He doesn't even bring it up. No, he doesn't even mention. Yeah, now nah, you know that's that's in the past. You know, maybe uh, we hit it off once. Um, we got that whole thing where you tried to kill me out of the way. Uh, you know, who knows what kind of future we could have. One of the most interesting parts of this movie to me was I felt it could be split into two separate movies. One where he puts on his sunglasses and he sees this conspiracy world revealed. It's very Twilight Zone. It's black and white. It's very artsy. And then the other is when he takes the sunglasses off and it's just a movie about a pro wrestler with a mullet running around talking trash. I like the imagery in the, the sunglasses on portions of this movie. Um, there's, there's a huge contrast from the rest of the movie. And I really like the stark black and white like almost communist propaganda. It reminded me very much of an artist uh, that I had the pleasure of working with um, on an album called Viva Nueva, uh, Shepard Fairey, who does all the all the Obey giant uh, art and merchandise. It also reminded me of uh, Trump's coronavirus briefings, uh, where he decided to turn it into a political campaign. Um, it's not a comforting image. Yeah, I mean, you talk, you talking about him running around just trash talking and doing meathead one-liners. Uh, Piper, you know, Piper actually carried a book around with him of just, of just trash talk one-liners that he was thinking of for his WWE matches 
Uh, so, you know, he was pulling, he was pulling lines like, you know, I've come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubblegum. Um, and then, uh, the late, uh, Randy Macho Man Savage actually said that his favorite line he ever heard from Piper inside the ring or outside was the line from the movie, uh, brother, life's a bitch and she's back in heat. <laughs> I'd, also, I'd also like to point out to R.I.P. to Roddy Piper. He actually passed away in 2015 as well. So we're saying all of this out of love. I think we all loved, you know. Oh man, the, the I, I love wrestler. I love Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, and he he did pass away. Wrestlers die like rock stars because all they do is inject steroids and cocaine and wrestle um, and you know destroy their bodies just as much as any. Uh, you know, any entertainment person, but um, I don't really like like wrestling when they're actually doing the wrestling. Like it's kind of boring. But I really like the um, the promos that they cut. You know, the the interviews, the supposed interviews where they you know get ready. They set the table for the next match. And uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper is one of my favorites. Sometimes I still like to dial up old classic Rowdy Roddy promos. He's gonna like break a full beer bottle on his head and like cut himself and uh, <laughs> master insult, just scream and yell. He's just obviously juiced out of his mind, but, but it's like legit acting. Like these guys were, especially these old school guys like him, they were like, you know, they were thespians. They created characters and they honed those characters over their whole careers. Um, but then unfortunately, if you put them in a movie, they realize they only know how to do this one character and it's uh, kind of like they're kind of in a box. You can see Roddy wants to go into his character in this movie and he, you know, he's trying to find a way around All it. All right, fans, my guest at this time is the very controversial host of Piper's Pit. He is from Glasgow, Scotland. Rowdy Roddy Piper was one of the great villains in all of pro wrestling. Mr. Wonderful, you heard it. He's wonderful. Uh, you've been talking to the apes and the giraffes and chimpanzees again, haven't you? They had a two and all, second all, Tylenol 4, uh, Decadroblin, Testosterone, uh, Placidils, um, Valium. You get this going and then you start drinking alcohol. Deadly combination. You bring cocaine into the, into the picture. Does a line. It's time to fight. No downers there. You know, let's go. But it would be nice to have a little painkiller in you as you go in, or a lot. And home. So now you come out of the ring. It's 10:30, and you're high. How are you? Sometimes late at night, I'll lay back in my bed. I'll close my eyes. At the time of our story, Piper was nearly 50 and said he despised the business. Yet he'd gone back into it to make a living. What What would you have me do at 49? when I, my pension plan I can't take out till I'm 65. I'm not gonna make 65. It's just face facts, guys. Roddy Piper died in Hollywood on July 31st. He was four years shy of his 65th birthday. She's all over, she's history. Stick a fork in you right now, because we're done. I don't Thank call me out, right? Thank you. Um, so my pick for this week was the 2004 movie Time of the Wolf. This is uh, Michael Haneke, I, I say. I don't know how it's pronounced really. Hanukkah, maybe. I think it's Michael Hanukkah. He's uh, an Austrian filmmaker and uh, one of my all-time favorites. Time of the Wolf is now 99 cents on Prime, so well, well worth it. Um, not one that you hear a lot about, but it's a much different take on the dystopia than they live. Um, this is very, I would call it sort of like realism. Um, there's no excitement, really. There's no rebels. There, There's no action Jackson stuff. There's no certainly no 30-minute fight scenes. Um, it really... Uh, it's about a family who is fleeing a calamity that is never really revealed exactly what it is. I think they're from Paris, um, or they're from a bigger city in, in France, and 
Um, they flee to their summer home uh, because they're pretty solidly middle or upper, or upper class, and they're quickly turned out of, uh, of that avenue. And um, kind of immediately, um, this is sort of a shocking thing where this family is immediately turned out from their comfortable upper class lifestyle into their literal, quite literal refugees. And they're just on the road um, looking for water, looking for food, looking for shelter. The very most basic requirements for a human being are just pulled right out from under them. And they are living like um, probably the majority of people or a lot of people uh, around the world that they would never come in contact with. Yeah, this one, this was a tough one. Um, you know, I appreciate, Trent, you digging up a movie that is literally impossible to research. Uh, like you said, um, not a lot of people know about it. I'd never heard of it. Uh, this is the first time I'd ever seen it. Um, Haneke did uh, both versions of the home invasion film Funny Games, uh, both the German version and the English version, which I love. Uh, and watching the intro to this, you know, there's an opening scene that makes you think that this movie's going to be like hot and heavy with the action, and there's going to be some like real shit going down. And that's literally about as exciting as it gets in terms of you know traditional horror movies. Um, I appreciated having to to watch this film and put you know put my notebook down, put my phone down. A lot of it shot very dark, um, so you really have to just be using all of your senses, uh, taking it in. And, you know, first watch, you know, you're kind of waiting, waiting for something to happen or the traditional movie viewer in you is waiting for the explanation. Like at any minute, you're going to get that scene where someone says, you know, here's what's happened or here's what's going on in London or uh, and you don't get it. Um, and, and I think some people will watch this and be like, you know, fuck that. I'm very unfulfilled. Um, I, f- I, I finished this movie. I don't want to say fulfilled, um, just re- really appreciating the way that it was done. You know, this guy really is a master of, of the types of movies he makes. Yeah. I, so what stresses me out the most, I think, about dystopian yeah. film is, you know, um, is the uncertainty of, you know, having a, a home, having somewhere to be safe, having somewhere to relax. And right off the bat, this movie kind of like gets that out of the way, sets the tone for what the rest of the movie is going to be like. And it was a very, you know, it was stressful because it was so real, because that seems like the most realistic, you know, uh, dystopian film for something like that. Like, you know, we don't know what happened. The water's contaminated. So no one can like, they, everybody's got to burn the cows. That was weird. Got to burn the cows. Burn the cows, bro. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was stressful, but I, I thought it was a great movie. Like, I absolutely had my eyes glued to the screen, you know, the whole time. So it was good. We talk a lot about French horror movies in this, and uh, for an Austrian director, uh, he cast, like, kind of the best of the best for French uh, actors in this. This obviously Isabel Huppert, uh, who is in Greta, Maurice Benichou, uh, who's from Amelie, but also from Cachet. Uh, and I know, Trent, you and I have talked about Cachet. It's like a uh, voyeur oh, great one. thriller. Yeah, that's uh, a great thriller. Um, so I feel like he tapped into how important um, these French actors were and how deep they were going into their roles. And this is a movie that definitely needed that substance and I don't think without these leading uh, characters, it would it would have had that because, you know, it was it was very slow. There was moments that were very intense. I thought the the lighting of the hay to see in the dark, these little bundles of hay that would just disintegrate as you used them, and you had to light another one. That was one of the most creative uses of like building suspense I'd ever seen with just the light. Uh, being there, and then you're you're in complete darkness, and you light up another bundle of hay. I thought it, I thought the um, the is it a canary, the bird, the pet bird parakeet. that they start out with? Oh, it's a parakeet. I actually gotcha, right. Canary, what kind canaries of bird are yellow. <laughs> I think canaries are yellow. This is a little green parakeet, and there's this mm-hmm. whole scene where he almost escapes. The the mom and the two kids are hiding hiding out in some shack somewhere. They've got nothing, and um, all the little boy has is is this parakeet, and the parakeet almost uh, escapes. There's a whole um, 
a whole scene where they're trying to recapture this bird and you know, my heart is kind of, you know, in my throat, like, oh man, you just, they can't let this bird get away. It's the only thing this little boy has. And you think that, you think it's going to get away just, you know, to, to be depressing. Um, but they, <laughs> they capture the bird, they get it back. But then like, like two scenes later, he's burying it. Like they're, they're so you kind of, you get that, oh, at least he still has the bird. And then with very little ceremony, he's just shown, you know, a couple minutes later, like putting some rocks on the bird. The bird's dead. Well, I f- I f- yeah, I feel like gone. he like suffocated it in his coat. He like shoved it did in. He kill, did he kill it? I don't think he killed it. Yeah, he did. He suffocated it in his jacket. Pets get it in this one. The pets get it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a real horse death in this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, which was very controversial. Everyone is after these guys for uh, sweating a horse's throat for the, the sake of film. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing about this horse that was killed on screen in this movie, criminally insane and terminally ill. The horse was suffering. The horse was going to die. The horse had a, a terminally uh, terminal disease, so they were kind of you know this horse was already asking to be um, to be euthanized, and they didn't know that though when filming it. Uh, I had actually read that in between scenes he was very condescending, and that's when they wrote in the death of the horse <laughs> into the scene. Oh. So are we are we basically saying that this is like the Black Philip of horses? <laughs> but Dave, you talked about Isabel Hupper. She's considered one of the best actresses in the world. Uh, if you look her up, she's won so many awards, um, and she was really fantastic in this. But did you do you guys notice um, Beatrice Dahl? She played the woman from Inside. Oh, right. I also thought that this movie reminded me a lot of The Road, um, the Cormac McCarthy novel. Um, and I never saw the book that, that Viggo Mortensen of Lord of the Rings fame um, starred in. But you mean I, the film? The film, yeah, film. sorry, the film. Um, I did read the book. Um, it also is very, doesn't explain anything. It just thrusts you into like this dystopian society um, and, and doesn't really tell you anything. You just, you're following two characters the entire book. Um, and there's really no resolutions. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how well the movie translated, but uh, Time of the Wolf definitely gave me like uh, that road vibe. That's how I felt uh, a couple months ago when all this stuff started happening to us. Uh, it was like, what's going on? Is this real? Uh, what are the implications of everything that's happening? And the dystopian movies just basically unfold that. Uh, and Time of the Wolf did it in a very real way. And it suggests that maybe the apocalypse is boring and and dull and you're just waiting around uh, yeah this yeah that's that's what i like too yeah the apocalypse is boring we're yeah we're in it right now this is the apocalypse just uh, you just can't go outside can't go anywhere and uh here here, here we are yeah. can't even can't even podcast i think you said it trent um this is probably the most realist depiction of how people would be acting in a situation like this yeah, there's a lot of that, like, um, there's a lot of break, you know, sort of everything's broken down so there's no rules anymore. And, you know, immediately it becomes this, like, even this train station where they're waiting um, for a train. To, they don't even know if this train is ever coming, but there's, like, a couple hundred people and they're sort of forming their own little ad hoc um, social structures, and, which is, like, a strong man. And, um, you know, there's, there's, like, a nice older guy that, that I thought was cool, but, you know, people are... Um, trading water uh, for sexual favors and um, goats are are uh, high on the list of uh, things because they produce milk and they've got kids and if you trade your watch maybe this guy will give you some water or maybe he'll just take your watch and just leave there's nothing you can do about it um, so that that was kind of um, cool and uh, depressing I, I liked how the the setting the dystopian setting was pretty much laid out by the dialogue. They had a very simple dialogue about fighting over supplies and rations and uh, living conditions. And that was all through, it wasn't through some sort of Mad Max crazy uh, visual thing. It was just done by storytelling. You didn't see any televisions in this. You didn't see any broadcasts. Um, So, you know, people would probably get, get their information like that they're just like saying things that they heard or somebody somebody heard there was a, a train at this place or whatever uh, did anyone have like a take on 
the title of the movie. Because when you told me uh, Time of the Wolf, oh, yeah. I was like, oh, I didn't expect a, a parakeet and a horse. I expected maybe there would be a wolf. <laughs> I'll try to keep this concise. Um, no, you, got, you, you, know this, you know what it comes from, Kevin, right? Yeah. So this actually takes its name from uh, Valespa, which is an ancient Norse poem. Uh, it describes the time before the Ragnarok, which was the fate of the gods. Um, it's considered the most important poem in Norse mythology. Um, part of the poem says, um, Hard is it on earth with mighty whoredom. Axe time, sword time, shields are sundered, wind time, wolf time. Ere the world falls, nor ever shall men each other spare. Great. <laughs> I feel like such a loser. <laughs> yeah, that was good. No, that was good. So the, that's the time of the wolf is the, is the time before the great collapse. Another dystopian movie we checked out uh, was Children of Men, 2006. This is a movie about a dystopian future where uh, all women are infertile and the last person to be born, baby Diego, has just passed away in the beginning of the movie. The whole world is mourning the death of this, what seems like kind of a douchebag, but he represents the last person that was born on Earth. What you have is uh, Clive Owen, the main character, um, has been asked to escort this uh, refugee who's pregnant and no one knows about it. Uh, so it, the fear of what the implications of the world knowing about this person, they're all very fearful of the government. They're all fearful of just anyone uh, because of how important this is that there's someone who's pregnant life may have a future on earth after all uh this is one of my favorite movies of all time my top three has clive owen julian moore um michael kane is amazing in this movie yeah i mean this this one was directed by alfonso cuaron uh who's known for gravity which he won an academy award for he did some harry some harry potter stuff um, and like you said, the cast is the cast is great. Yeah, actually, Quaron did uh, the third Harry Potter movie, which is the lowest grossing at the box office, but is one of my favorites. I, I love Harry Potter. Just full disclosure. Um, that one was the I'm worst shocked. one. That's really nope. surprising. Sorry. Um, yeah, this so this movie, uh, it's insane. The cast, first of all, is incredible. Clive Owen is awesome. Uh, Michael Caine uh, plays this total stoner in a role, unlike at least that I've seen Michael Caine play. Um, and in this movie, Michael Caine also has one of the greatest fuck yous in any film that's ever been made. Um, it is a, a lot of these long shots that are just, you know, one take, you know, they go minutes at a time um, to really pull you in. And you, you kind of have to stop and, and, and realize that like you've been holding your breath for minutes at a time as Koran takes you through massive action sequences and these chase scenes. Um, and it, it, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I would agree, Dave, this is an incredible movie. I also think, um, you know, we've got two movies that we'll talk about today that don't really deal with the propaganda aspect. Um, but They Live and Children of Men definitely have a heavy propaganda aspect. There's a lot of They Live type moments or even like the situation that we're talking in uh, with Trump um, where there's, you know, scenes where Theo, who is Clive Owen's character, he's on a bus and they're showing all these videos and propaganda talking about how every other country has failed except for the UK. Um, so it's just... Um, it's interesting the, the the relations that this has to a movie like They Live, even though the tone is incredibly different. Uh, and it definitely ties into what we're all going through right now. And the propaganda is based around this product called Quietus, which is basically uh, 
if you can't hack the dystopia, then just kill yourself. And we offer you this product to safely uh, kill yourself in your home, which uh, it's, it's like injecting disinfectant into your lungs. I think, yeah, I think oh, we're being offered like that. The same, yeah. It's like the same thing we're getting now for advice. <laughs> I might, I might take it. I, I might drink some bleach. <laughs> I might drink some bleach later on, to be honest. I was already, I was already thinking about it before the president suggested it. I've, I've been thinking about it for years. Oh. Um, you know, when you introduce when you introduce this movie as um, you know, like, oh, it's a time in the future and women are all infertile, my first thought is like, this is a utopian film. This seems like, you know, nobody can get pregnant. Everybody you know, just like going raw dog, all you know, um, Clive Owen just doing whatever he wants. <laughs> it seems like the opposite of dystopia. It seems like that oh. would be that would be a, a Candyland, a, a time, and a utopia. A, yeah, it would be a utopia. Um, but no, it's it's not. Clive Owen doesn't even. I don't think there's any sexy time, uh, which is weird for a movie that's like so based on the idea of of needing. I guess they've all given up um, on procreation, but they don't. Um, the whole time, the the poor guy doesn't. Uh, he doesn't even get it in. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> Yeah, the only the only mention of sex I think is when Julianne Moore asks him if he still likes it in the afternoon. It's about as sexy as it gets. Woo. Um, I liked the I think uh, the cinematographer Emmanuel Lebesky is very well known for like the long continuous shots. He did uh, Birdman, which basically the whole movie is like that. Um, but I also really liked the. Uh, the way that they set up the characters like the characters themselves were really good like michael kane's character like three chef kisses i loved him and then so clive owen you know he's a civil servant and he you know goes to work after you know the news of baby diego hits and you know his desk mate like the person who sits across from him is like watching a video about baby Diego like weeping she's got all these weird little like figurines on her desk like Britain flags and then you you know you pan over to Clive Owen and his desk has nothing on it and he's just like staring at her and then he goes into the office and he's like oh like talking to his boss he's like I gotta I'm just really not taking the death of baby Diego very well and he's like oh, okay and so he like gets out of work and it's uh it's cute Clive Owen's cute I also liked how every time there was an animal, like a baby animal. They gravitated towards Clive Owen's character. Like there were like dogs that were like trying to hang out with him, and then like the kittens were trying to climb his leg. I thought that was like a very interesting way to be like, "Yes, you are the protector, Clive Owen. Take this baby." I think we should. I think we should point out that we keep calling Baby Diego "baby," and th that asshole was actually like eighteen years old. You know, yeah. he was just the last baby to be born. Um, so the the movie is actually based on a book um, that was uh, written by, hold on, Phyllis Dorothy James, who goes by P.D. James. Um, she passed away in 2014. So one of the criticisms that the movie got is that the book apparently is heavily religious. Um, and a lot of, you know, very conservative groups were criticizing the filmmakers for taking a lot of the religion out. I disagree with that. And Kat, you just made a great point. Um, and fans of this book don't skewer me because I haven't read it. But I picked up on like a very Noah vibe from Clive Owen. Like he was the one that was going to like yeah. build the ark or something. And mm -hmm. that's why he was so important. Um, but there's a lot of... And then of they're other... in the boat at the end too. Yeah. And there's a lot so of other religious religious things you know um there's the whole you know the pregnant refugee that we're talking about clive owen asks about who the father is and she you know i thought jokingly says i'm a virgin um but they're clear they're, they're clearly leaving in a lot I, I just think that in a book you can lay these things out i think that quaran did a great job um and i don't know if he was the writer of of the script as well but i thought they left a ton of stuff in they just left it there very subtly for you to pick up upon if you wanted to or you could just enjoy you know a movie without being barraged by you know religious overtones yeah i i really thought the um there's a birth scene that is so affecting because it's in the middle of a major firefight between occupying forces and the rebels and the way that all the soldiers lay down their uh, arms and stop and even some of them even like kneel and pray 
um, was really striking. It, it was sort of this Jesus born in Palestine type thing. Um, there was, you know, suddenly there's something more important than killing each other. Like even these warring factions could agree. Um, such a weird juxtaposition that they're willing to stop um, killing each other just for a minute because of the significance uh, of this birth that they're all now aware of. Really, really weird and uh, really affecting moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious how, how it went off in the book because one of the things that, that the movie changed from the book is that it's actually an infertility of men. Um, so, you know, I should probably read another book. Yeah, you're, it's been 15 years, you're due. Um, so a lot of these dystopian movies... Uh, all, I mean, I can't really think of too many dystopian movies that really fall under horror besides for zombie movies, mm -hmm. which are pretty much all dystopian. They're all right. Sure. But, so you didn't get the Easter egg thing as much uh, to horror movies, but there was one Easter egg uh, where they reenacted the place where the Pink Floyd Animals album cover oh, is. Oh, yeah. The, the pig floating over the factory. Yeah. There's a moment with Clive Owen's character is meeting with his friend that is going to help them get sanctuary for the, the pregnant girl. And they're standing next to a window with this, the album cover basically outside the window of Pink Floyd Animals. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, that was really cool. I noticed that too. Um, that was a major Easter egg. And, and we haven't even gotten into, if, if someone's willing to riff on this, we haven't even got into the immigration and detainment tones uh, that are in this movie dealing with refugees and dealing with um, yeah, immigration. Um, well, yeah, that was a huge part of it, and um, it's, it's prescient. And we've talked about this in the past on the Zombie Mania director's cut. We talked about 28 Days Later, the French horror. We talked about um, the movie Inside. Um, sort of one of the, one of the uh, sort of standard white power, um, especially European white power tenants is the idea of the birth rate. The, the white European birth rate is slowing down. Western birth rate is slowing down and Eastern birth rates are speeding up. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. Birth rates in um, countries that are not white are much higher and there is this looming fear of being genetically replaced being culturally replaced that um what they've known as western civilization e even if it's just through nature um through through procreation and the birthing of children they're going to be wiped out and and there's going to lose their history and uh their control ultimately over everything and that runs through a lot of these movies and there's a lot of that in children of men for sure well part of the fear that they have in exposing this discovery is that the government will not accept this or respect it or treat it the way they should because it's a refugee uh like the dehumanization of the refugees even if the last fertile person on earth is a refugee they would somehow take that away from them definitely they're they, they they sort of plan on that and and one of the that was kind of like one of the there was like splinter the, the the rebel group almost this is another example where the the rebel group is almost becomes whether their um, intentions are sound or not they sort of become dictators uh of their own and the uh, and one of the things that Clive Owen has to do is get the the pregnant refugee away from the the supposed rebels because they're they're actually just you know trying to use this use this child for their own purposes and they they sort of become they become fascists in 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 and of themselves you know within their own group which is interesting in a strange way it reminded me of like Lord of the Rings. Whereas people seem like great characters, they seem like, oh, I can trust this guy. And then the moment they find out that the girl is pregnant, their whole demeanor switches and you can see the, the gears turning in their head and they ha their motives completely switch. Um, I, I thought that that was, you know, very telling of, you know, uh, 
the human reaction to something like this is people often can't control their their greed or the, or the power um, of a discovery like this. Yeah, I think that's important. It's an important point to, to, to make that when we're talking about the government and the rebels, um, Clive Owen and Key, the refugee in this movie, uh, they're being helped by nobody. So when we say rebels, sometimes you're like, yeah, root for those guys, like get with the rebels. But in this movie, it's it's literally, you know, Clive Owen is Theo, it's Key. And I think the only other like pure character in the movie is Michael Caine's Jasper. Is there a chance it will not work for me? There have been no cases of anyone surviving who has taken the preparation. Daddy government hands out suicide kits and antidepressants into rations, but ganja is still illegal. Most of my wheat goes to Bex Hill now. This bloke buys it from me and smuggles it in. Guess what he does? His real job. Immigration cop. Bravo. One of the many perks of having a refugee camp in the neighborhood. Taste it. Strawberries. This is strawberry cough. All right, so the last movie that we watched this week was 2016's Girl with All the Gifts. This is uh, Cole McCarthy helmed it. Uh, it was written by Mike Carey, um, who's a big comic writer who also wrote uh, the 2014 book of the same name, Girl with All the Gifts. So, uh, Dave, you just mentioned that a lot of dystopian movies are just zombie flicks. And on the surface, Girl with All the Gifts comes off as just another zombie flick. Uh, however, it's a little more complicated in that uh, there is a, a fungal infection that has taken over the world and is turning people into, into zombies. Or in this movie, they uh, give them their own little nickname, Hungries. Um, and there's a group of children that were born from infected people. Uh, and there's this particular lab that is now studying these children. Um, and essentially all hell breaks loose and you have uh, a teacher and some soldiers that are trying to get a scientist and one surviving child uh, to some sort of lab to try to synthesize uh, a cure for this for this fungal infection. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, it goes from there. Two things. I like hearing you say fungal. <laughs> fungal. I like hearing you say fungal and I like that um, when you say that the director helmed it, you know, like he was the captain of the ship. Yeah, he was at the helm. He was at the helm of this movie. That's good. Anyway, what'd you guys think of this movie? I love this movie. I'm glad this was a pick for dystopia week instead of zombie week. Cause I had no idea it was a zombie film going into it. And so in the beginning, I'm like, what are all these weird serial killer children? Like, why are they locked up? Where they have guns like pointed? I'm like, what have they done? Um, and I guess, I, th as far as zombie movies go, I thought this was prime. I thought they were fast. They were scary. Like the weird seed pods fucked everything up. It was just, I, I think it was an interesting, uh, interesting uh, take on zombie children, basically. So these children are born from, they ate their way out of the womb when the, the pregnant moms were infected uh, I thought that was interesting, too, because now the children are these coherent, uh, they're able to speak, they're not your traditional zombies, um, but they they turn into zombies when they smell blood or sweat or uh, saliva. So I thought that was kind of cool to have the the zombies that go back and forth between being regular people and then losing control and turning into these flesh-eating monsters um and it, it reminded me of uh like pinocchio or like blade runner where you have something that it's not quite human that just yearns to be human the main character this this child she wants so bad to just lead a normal life as a child she looks up to her teacher and she constantly tries to control this which I think is kind of why she is a little bit uh, more powerful than uh, some of the other children is because they succumb to their 
their impulses where she can kind of control it a little bit. That was another uh, very similar to Children of Men, this militarization of uh, society to the point where they have all these kids. Um, they're, they're captured like there are, obviously there are feral, uh, loose zombie kids, but um, they have them all captured and are holding them in um, a station, a penitentiary, I mean a jail, really. The kids are all in jail and they have to strap them all down and um, they take them to these classes and stuff and it, it's all very, it's like Guantanamo Bay. Again, it's this sort of, um, this refugee theme that runs through a lot of these movies and uh, runs through um, you know, modern, modern uh, global reality. And, and Glenn Close is in this movie playing um, the, the scientist that is really trying to find a cure for this. Um, so, so they're taking them through school and actually teaching them things. But then every day, Glenn Close goes to uh, Sienna Nanua is Melanie, the, the girl with all the gifts, the girl that, you, that we're talking about. Uh, Glenn Close goes to her and tells her to pick a number. And it took me like the second or third time I watched this movie to realize that when Melanie tosses out the number, she's giving her a number of one of the cells that one of the other kids is in. And that's the kid that Glenn Close is then taking and basically killing and harvesting their brain and spine to try to find a cure. Oh, but at the, at I didn't the, get the, I didn't get the number thing. I, I knew it meant something, but um, only now do I realize what that was about. Yeah. That's why she, Glenn Close was like so surprised when she was like, you know, what's your next number? And she's like 13. She's like, really? Cause the, I, I think the girl it, knew. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, she did. Obviously did. I thought it was yeah. just bad luck, you know, 13. In Blade Runner, they have these tests that they give them that are like these logic problems to find out if they're uh, human or not, you know? And in this movie, they're always asking them these weird logic problems, like there's a cat in a box, is yeah. it alive or is it dead? <laughs> what is, what's the probability? Um, so I thought it, 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 that way it was also like uh, Blade Runner. I think there's two like really big, you know, parts of the movie that that I loved. One was the Hungries, um, you know, like I mentioned, it's fungal, uh, and they eventually, you know, sort of progress to this point where. Uh, they're actually growing, you know, stalks out of their heads and they're all forming into these giant trees together and building these seed pods. Uh, and, they, and the scientists, the military people, Miss Justino, they realize if, the, if these seed pods were to burst for whatever reason, it would go airborne and the world is done. Um, and then on the other hand, you have this aspect of the movie where it, they're really trying to humanize Melanie and these kids uh, and everybody's kind of fighting. Some people view them as just, you know, animals that need to be studied so we can save, you know, the uninfected. Um, but they're really humanizing Melanie and you're drawn to this character. Uh, and there's this point in the movie where Glenn Close is is trying to convince Melanie, look, I have I have to kill you so that I can save the world. And Melanie kind of asked the question, you know, do you believe that that people like me, the other children, are alive and conscious? And when Glenn Close answers yes, Melanie just very plainly asks, you know, why should we have to die for you to live? Yeah, I think there's a, a commentary on like uh, youth and, and new ideas versus old ideas. You know, like um, the the if the youth is stronger and has progressed and evolved uh why should they go back to what they once were that's that's what was confusing to me because that on one hand that seemed to be the message but if if that's what it's um if if that's sort of what it's uh i don't want to say promoting but if that's sort of the the view that the movie is trying to get across the, then the new generation would be why is it eating flesh and killing people like I was confused as to what the what the perspective of the movie was because you're you know on the one hand you have the 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 death of the imperialist controlling um, autocratic uh, militarized regime and you have uh, the young generation sort of rising up but on the other hand the young generation portrayed here are flesh eating monsters. Who will kill everyone? And the hero of the movie, uh, just uh, Doctor, is it uh, Justino, the teacher? Miss mm -hmm. Justino. Miss Justino, like, isn't is? I, I feel like she's sort of portrayed as a 
misguided white savior who ends up teaching zombies through a glass uh, partition, a sealed partition. Spoiler um, alert. You know, I don't... <laughs> well, it, in, in, unless you say that. It's not unless you say that. Um, so it's just... I was confused about the messages that the movie was trying to get across. I'm not sure what exactly the intent was. Well, if you think about it, a lot of the conflict between generations is dietary. You know, you have kids now that don't want to eat McDonald's. They're vegetarians. They're vegans. No, these, no GMOs. Yeah, but these kids are maybe beyond that. Human flesh. Yeah. Maybe human flesh is the answer these, yeah. uh, that the the, the future uh, will finally latch onto. That controls the population. It feeds people. It's true. There's a big yeah, there's a big transposition between the the book and the movie in that. You just mentioned, Trent, that, you know, Miss Justino is this white teacher that ends up teaching all the zombies. Um, well, in the in the movie, Melanie, the, the girl with all the gifts, is black. But in the book, it's the opposite. Uh, Melanie is actually this very fair-skinned white child, and Miss Justino is described as this, you know, beautiful uh, uh, black woman. Right, exactly. So, again, it makes me question the point of view and... Um, you know, white savior. I, I say that as like a, a, a trope, a character where the the white Western person has to teach the savages and help the savages. That's something that runs through a lot of stuff. That's you know really uh, uh, from a very racist um, philosophy. So again, that was confusing. And I, and I, I read that they flip flopped it that in the in the book um, Melanie was white. So it just made me question, you know, where is, where is Colin McCarthy coming from here? I yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to go deep into it, but there's a really good Afropunk article by uh, Hari Ziad that delves into uh, the racial aspects of this movie uh, and, and sort of talks about the, uh, the flip flopping of the, our two main characters from, from book to film. Y'all read too much. <laughs> I will it's, say, not a read, it's not a reading cast. <laughs> a read cast. My, my favorite part, um, actually, out of all of this was the, um, the giant fungal tree, the towering tree of fungus and the pods. You know, the pods kind of take it out of the zombie realm and into the, um, the color from out of space, H.P. Lovecraft, cosmic terror realm of these um organic organic pods are gonna see they're gonna open and seed the world with this new wave i thought that was like one of the cooler spins that i didn't see coming yeah I've, i feel like that's not something that's done very often in zombie films yeah i like the idea of plants taking over too it's just like the last enemy you expect and uh and then all of a sudden they're much We're, cooler plants than uh, the happening. Oh, I was just going to say that. Yeah, the, <laughs> <laughs> the pods are way that's, cooler than that. That's the closest I've ever come to walking out of a movie theater. Is when I realized that the whole premise of the happening was the plants are killing us. I literally looked at my friends and I was like, "Let's just fucking go." <laughs> I, I I didn't mind that 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 part necessarily, but when um, they have to run away from the wind, <laughs> that was where I was like, "All right." When, when so, Walbert Donnie's like, stay ahead of the winds. Like, oh, how dude, that's, stay that's, ahead? Not, that's not stay Donnie ahead Wahlberg. That's Mark Wahlberg. Mark, it's Mark. <laughs> yeah, Mark whichever Smarky Wahlberg. Mark. I, don't, I don't care what Wahlberg it is. So, so, the point. so speaking of the fungus that you're talking about, Trent. Um, say fungus. Say fungus again. Don't you say <laughs> fungus no, or, say or fungal. fungal? Fungal? Fungal. Yeah, yeah. Fungal. So there is a real life I'm fungus. Familiar, believe me, I'm familiar with fungal infection. <laughs> so there's actually a real life fungus uh, that bears resemblance to the one in this movie. Uh, it's called the O unilateralis or the zombie fungus. It only infects carpenter ants for now. Uh, and when first infected, the ants undergo severe whole body convulsions as the humans do in the movie. Uh, and this is a very 28 days later like infection. Um, it's like super fast and you're like up and running and eating everything like within seconds. Um, the fungus that if you're an ant, huh? If you're an ant, yeah. If you're, <laughs> um, the fungus starts controlling the ant's brain, and eventually it directs the ant to climb up a tree, where the next stage occurs. So, like in the movie, the fungus grows through the victim's head to produce a long stalk, and when conditions are right, uh, pods open up to make the fungus airborne to infect uh, many more hosts. 
and uh, it also protects the the host from some environmental pathogens, um, which it says they also show in the movie with Melanie. So anyway, we could have, you know, that could be the next thing that jumps to humans in the future. So we have that to look forward to. I'm I think ready. it's already, yeah, it's already jumped to my toenails. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> no, thank you, please. <laughs> Now it's time for the horror movie news. Just when you thought the news couldn't get worse, we're here to make it so. Well, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, you know, they were the two um, earliest, most high profile victims of COVID. Um, They both caught it on vacation in Australia. But it's been reported today that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson have volunteered um, to donate blood to an antibody program. It turns out they have the antibodies now. And so oh. they're, yeah, they're volunteered for a program where their blood is going to be experimented on and used and uh, their antibodies are going to be used to further uh, try to find vaccine and uh, battle this COVID thing. Tom Hanks is such a do-gooder. He really is. Yeah. sick of him. Uh, he's just like the everyman. He's in every movie as every man. I, I, I got sick of him like 15 years ago. I just can't what? make like every... Now he's Mr. Rogers. I mean, there's other actors in the fucking world than Tom Hanks. Why does he have to be every single, every man guy? Has to be Tom Hanks. Nobody else can have the role. You seem a little worked up. 